This morning we're in Psalms 86 as we continue our series on Psalms 86. If you want to read ahead, we'll be in Psalms 96 next week. Psalms 86 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your character, that you're gracious, that you have steadfast love towards us, that you're merciful, that you're truthful. And as we go through the trials of our lives, would you help us to see your steadfast character? We're excited to meet with you. We pray that you'd open up our ears to hear your word, open up our hearts to plant it deep within our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that each of our four kids did when they were little is they would grab my face when I wasn't paying attention, put their little hands right on my face to say, Dad, I need your attention. Dad, listen to me. Dad, I'm trying to tell you something, right? And what they're really saying is turn to me. I need your attention to turn to me. In this Psalms that David writes, he uses this phrase, God, would you turn to me? Would you turn your attention towards me? We know that God does hear us, but at this point, David's going through such trial and such difficulty, saying, Lord, I need your special attention. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. The holidays, Christmas, it's, it's highlighting pain in your life. It's, it's highlighting the loss of, of a loved one. There's things that are challenging in your life that go beyond the holidays. You know as you get into the new year, it's, it's going to be challenging. You're in a season of trouble, of difficulty, to cry out to the Lord. Say, God, would you hear my prayer? Would you turn your attention towards me? In this Psalm, Psalms 86, we've got two streams, two things that are happening. The first is David asking for God's attention. And then the second is he's focusing on God's character. Many times as we cry out before the Lord and we really open up our heart to him and the pain that we're going through is then we find ourselves focusing upon his character that's steadfast, that's not changing in the midst of our difficulty. Verse one, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. God, bow down your ear towards me. Turn your face towards me. God, would you hear my prayer? This desperation that's coming from David. David recognizes his condition before the Lord, that he's poor, that he's needy, that he needs God's help. This is being poor in spirit. If that's where we're at, that's a good place for us to be, is I don't have it together. I can't make this work. I don't have the answers. I'm poor and needy before you. Throughout scripture, there's several people that got to this place where they pour out their hearts before the Lord, where they cry out to the Lord. I think of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. She was unable to have children, broke her heart. She's barren. She comes to the tabernacle. and She's so broken before the Lord that Eli, the priest, thinks that she's drunk, begins to rebuke her. Like, really? You're drunk at church? Couldn't you hold off a little bit? And she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm crying out before the Lord. Imagine this morning, like we try to be kind of put together when we come to church. I don't know why, but we, we do. 
Imagine if there was someone at church this morning that was just so, so broken. They're weeping. And you look and you go, man, what's, what's wrong with you? Are you drunk? They're so overcome. But Hannah knew, I'm taking my grief to the Lord. And God heard her prayer and blessed her with the child Samuel. We see Jairus, who's a father in the Gospels, has a 12-year-old daughter. This 12-year-old daughter gets sick, and it's to the point of death. He decides that he's going to take his desperation and go to Jesus. Parents, you may know what this feels like. Some of you have watched your kids be sick. Some of you have seen your children die because of disease, and it's such a helpless feeling. You would much rather take the sickness yourself than to see your child be sick and at the point of death. He comes to Jesus, Jesus, you got to come with me. My daughter's at the point of death. As they're journeying, here comes a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She brings her desperation to Christ by touching the hem of his garment. She's healed in that moment. Jesus stops the whole crowd and says, who touched me? Now, if we're Jairus, we're probably going, what are you doing, right? Who cares who touched you? I don't care who touched you right now. Like, I want to touch you and bring you to my daughter. She, she's dying. As this is happening, Jairus gets the message that his daughter has died. Jesus says, no, let's keep going. Christ comes and raises his daughter from the dead. Jairus knew that brokenness and was able to bring that pain to the Lord. You've got a choice to make. I've got a choice to make. Are we going to cry out to the Lord in our pain? Are we going to continue to bring it to him? What is it that you can't figure out? What is it that grieves your soul? What's that burden that's weighing upon you? Cast your care upon the Lord. This is a lifestyle because one thing we know is pain is going to continue to be part of our journey. There's going to be trial in this life. So to walk in this way of saying, Lord, I'm giving this over to you. Verse 2, preserve my life for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. David is saying, please keep my life. Please hold me together because I'm holy or godly. In essence, what David is saying is not that I'm perfect, but I am living my life for you. And since I'm living my life for you, would you please come and be gracious to help me? You're my God, and I trust in you. I'm your servant, I trust in you. So as he's crying out to the Lord in this difficulty, he's also expressing trust. Lord, I trust you. I don't understand this, but I know that you're in control. I'm choosing to place my trust in you. Verse 3, be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry out to you all day long. Be merciful, be gracious, O Lord, to me in the midst of this trial. God, I need your mercy, and I'm going to cry out to you all day long. All day long, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, all throughout the day, I'm crying out to you. Sometimes prayer is very focused and devoted, and you're able to have 15 minutes, a half hour, to be alone and to get into God's presence. But sometimes prayer is very spontaneous, a flare prayer throughout the day. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. He was bringing the beverage to the king and chose to be sad in the king's presence, which is not what would be typical 
And the king noticed and says, Nehemiah, why are you sad? He realizes this is his opportunity to bring before the king the fact that there's no walls around the temple in Jerusalem. Before he makes the request, scripture tells us he prayed. He prayed. Nehemiah didn't get on his knees. Nehemiah probably didn't say a prayer out loud, but in his heart, he's like, Lord, this is the moment. Please help. So as we're going through difficulty and as we're going through trial to be in a place of, God, I'm going to cry out to you all day long. Verse 4, rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The word rejoice is for God to gladden our soul. Lord, my soul feels dead. My soul feels dull in the midst of this trial. So would you gladden my soul? Oftentimes we see the psalmist choosing with his soul to rejoice in the Lord, and that's very important. But here, David is saying, God, I need you to do a work in my soul where you gladden my soul, where you rejoice my soul. Is that where you're at this morning where you go, you know, I'm, I'm flat. I know I'm flat. I know I'm dull. I know I'm, I'm discouraged. And so God, would you, would you rejoice my, my soul? Christmas is a wonderful time of year, but it also leaves us in a place of feeling kind of empty. When all the gifts are opened, you go out to your garage, and you're like, there's so much trash, right? There's so many boxes. I ate all this food that I don't normally eat, and I don't really feel very good. I think I had too much eggnog, right? And the season in and of itself ultimately can't give us lasting joy, but Jesus can. Bring your soul to him. God, would you, would you rejoice my soul? Would you cause my soul to be glad? He lifts up his soul to the Lord. He entrusts his soul to the Lord. And then verse 5 is this shift. Verse 5 is this change that, that happens. Is Now he begins to focus upon the character of God. And this is what I would encourage us to do with our troubles and our difficulty and our despair. Is just give it over to the Lord. Give it over to the Lord in honesty and in desperation. Have a conversation with him. And you'll probably find yourself in that process where you begin focusing on the character of God. You begin to focus on who he is. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to those who call upon you. You're good. This is who God is, that God is good. How do you know that God is good? Do you base the knowledge that God is good off of your experience? Oh, I got a promotion. God is good. I lost my job. God's not good. Oh, I didn't get the flu this Christmas season. God's good. Oh, I have the flu. God's not good. Is God's goodness based on the ups and downs of our circumstances? If things work out according to our preferences? Or are we confident in faith regardless of our feelings that God is good? How do we know that we know that God is good? There's many ways, but the greatest of ways is the cross of Jesus Christ. As we celebrate communion in a few moments, we know that God is good because he gave his son for us to die for our sins. His only begotten son. So many times in the gospels, there's this emphasis of how well-pleased the father is with the son. 
He wants us to know what a tremendous sacrifice it is that he would give his son to come, take on human flesh, be born and placed in a manger, to go to the cross to to die for our sins. We know, we can be confident, we have an anchor to our souls that God is good because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not based upon our circumstances, God is good. We have to be reminded of this in trial. We have to be reminded of this in in difficulty because it gets foggy when we're in trouble. It gets foggy when it's difficult and our flesh starts to go, is God good? Does God love me? The enemy loves to come in and sweep in and start to plant lies in us without even knowing and saying, look, your spouse rejected you. Your spouse left you. Your spouse is filing for divorce. See, God's not good. God doesn't, God doesn't love you. Here, you're trying to live your life to serve the Lord and then here the sufferings come into your life. Can you really, can you really trust him? And we have to fight. Say, I know that God is good. Not because of my circumstance, but because of the knowledge of Jesus through his crucifixion. And David comes to that place and being reminded God's good and God's ready to forgive. Isn't that a wonderful attribute about God? That he is ready to forgive. If I'm honest, if I've really been hurt, I'm not ready to forgive. I'm slow to forgive, right? God has this position, this posture where he is ready to forgive. He's ready to pour out forgiveness in our lives. When we trust Christ for salvation, the scripture says that we're justified, which means we're declared righteous. It's a legal term of God declaring his forgiveness upon us, past, present, and future. So why do we need to confess our sin? When we sin, we don't lose our salvation, thankfully. So the purpose for us to confess our sin is to be in right relationship with God, for nothing to hinder our fellowship with God. For those of you that are married, when you sin against your spouse, hopefully you're still married. Hopefully your spouse doesn't kick you to the curb because you've sinned. But if you don't humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, there's going to be a frost in the relationship, isn't there? It's not going to be quite what it needs to be. The fellowship is going to be broken until we humble ourselves and say, would you forgive me? I've sinned against you. So 1 John 1, 9 tells us to confess our sins. And if if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's ready to to, to forgive. He's ready for us to go before him and say, God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And he's like, yes, yes. A lot of times, we don't really believe this about God, that he's ready to forgive. We think God's going like, oh, you know, I've kind of forgiven you of this too many times. Like, this is one too many times. I'm not going to forgive you on this one any longer. Peter asked the question, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive? What did Jesus say? 70 times 7. Do you think that Jesus was really giving a mathematical equation? Like once someone gets to 70 times 7, then they're done. Like, sorry, I'm not forgiving you anymore. The message that God was giving to Peter is God's forgiveness is limitless. And so our forgiveness of others should be limitless. God is ready to forgive. He's waiting to, to forgive. I love that about the Lord. 
and abundant in mercy to those who call upon him. This word mercy can also be translated steadfast love. That's the idea of God's mercy. The ESV version, the English Standard Version, as you read the Psalms, many times translates mercy as steadfast love. Mercy is not giving somebody the judgment they deserve. The source of God's mercy is his steadfast love. What causes God to be merciful is his steadfast love. And guess what? He is abounding in steadfast love. He is abounding in mercy towards us. So here is David really going through a trial. His very existence is on the line. And he's reflecting and going, God, your love for me is steadfast. Your mercy for me is just abounding and pouring out into my heart and into my life. Verse 6, he goes back to the plea. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplication. God, please listen. Please respond. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon the Lord, for you will answer me. This decision, this declaration to go to the Lord in his day of trouble and confidence that God will answer. Church, we're going to go somewhere with our trouble. And sometimes we go to sinful things in our day of trouble, and it only makes things worse. You really can't drown your sorrows in alcohol, because then you sober up, and now things are just more difficult. You really can't drown yourself in marijuana, in pot, and think, ah, man, I'm just going to smoke my troubles away. I'm going to numb myself, and so I'm going to go to this. You really can't just go to working more to try to get away from your trouble. Here's this trouble in my life, so, so I'm going to work more. Physical exercise, as great as it is, cannot solve the problems in the, the day of trouble. So where are we going to go in our trouble? We have the one to go to. We have the refuge. We have Jesus to be able to go to him, to cry out to him in the day of trouble, and he's going to answer. He's the one that we run to in the day of trouble. And verse 8, among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. So David begins to think about these false gods, these idols. If you call out to the idols, they're not going to save, they're not going to deliver, they're not going to help, they're not going to provide strength. Have you ever thought about those that are caught up in false religions? Most false religions have their foundation in being works-based. If you do enough righteousness, maybe you'll be saved. The gospel, the Bible, Christianity, is Christ is the one who's righteous, who's died for our sins. And as we trust him, we are saved by, by grace. And as we compare the one true living God with these false religions, it causes our hearts to rejoice and go, there's none like you. It's amazing to be the child of God. It's amazing to be in a place of grace and be in relationship with the Lord. In verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All nations you have made. God has made all nations. He is the creator of all of us. We're all created in God's image. It's amazing to me how some who have claimed to be Christians throughout history 
have found a way inside of Christianity to think that God loves this race of people more than this race of people. That God loves this ethnic group more than this ethnic group. Like, how does this group of people decide that they're the chosen ones and everyone else is not, right? Or, yeah, all these people God's okay with, but these people over here got God's not okay with. No, God made us all. He, he created all the nations of the world. As being created in God's image, don't we love creativity? Don't we love variety? And God is the master creator, and he created humanity with diversity. He designed us to be different, right? He designed cultures to be different. He has made us all. And his intent and desire for the nations, and this is part of the great works that David is praising the Lord for, is that they would come before him in worship and they would glorify the Lord. One of the things I'm looking forward to in heaven is to see the nations be glad in the presence of God. To see all of the different ethnic groups that God has created, wouldn't it be wonderful to see a representation of every people group worshiping the Lord? Every language, every tribe, every tongue glorifying the Lord for who he is. I want to share with you a little bit of what God is doing through our church in the area of reaching the nations. Because if you come to RMC regularly and God leads you to, to give here with your tithes and offerings, a portion of your tithes and offerings goes to missions. We're investing in our community, but we're also investing in the nations. Some of the missionaries that we support are Kevin and Wendy Case. And there'll be some pictures coming up as I'm sharing uh, about them. They've been working on Bible translation to the Tepewan Indians. I hold a copy in my hand for 35 years. This right here has taken 35 years of work and it's completed. Just a few weeks ago, the Tepewan were able to receive the New Testament in their own language. When Kevin started working on this Bible translation project, the Tepewan live in a remote part of the Copper Canyon in Mexico. It would take him an eight-hour donkey ride to get there. There was no roads into where they lived. That's a long commute to work. Eight hours on a donkey just to be able to get there. And Kevin and Wendy described that during these 35 years of working with the Tepewan, there wasn't a lot of fruit. There wasn't a lot of appreciation. There wasn't a lot of hunger for the things of God. Discouragement would really set in for Kevin. He said the only way that he was able to continue to persevere was doing what Psalms 86 describes is he would go out and get along with God and just cry out to God. Sometimes weeping before the Lord and begin to sing and begin to worship, just asking that God would give him the strength to continue on in this project. Well, now it's finished. And as they had this celebration to hand out the Bibles, the Tepewan were extremely excited to receive God's word in their own language. Could you imagine trying to have a relationship with God without the word of God, right? And to be able to sit down and be able to, to read it in their own language. In God's providence, Kevin and Wendy's flight 
out of this village was canceled due to the weather after this celebration. So they had to stay an extra night and day. The next morning, a group of women come with their Bibles and they're wanting to have a Bible study. God's word was already having impact. Why I wanted to share this with you guys is our church has been able to be a small part of this by supporting Kevin and Wendy. And as we get to heaven someday, you may not meet Tepewan in this lifetime, but I want you to look for Tepewan when you get to heaven, okay? Another piece of this story is that there's a young man who grew up as a missionary kid, and his parents as well were missionaries to the Tepewan. And he never, in his wildest dreams, anticipated that God would call him to the Tepewan. Now he's in his mid-20s, married with a few young kids, and him and his wife are moving into this village to be able to minister to the Tepewan. And he's got a tremendous tool that has been, been given, the Word of God, the New Testament. Also, our church for several years has been focusing on the Taramara Indians who also live in the Copper Canyon, but have had to come live in the city of Chihuahua. We do a child sponsorship program called Light Shine, where we sponsor some kids so they can come to a children's program. For years and years, the Taramara really have been an isolated, separate people. But a week and a half ago, Friday night, they had a Christmas party for the Taramara. Some of our youth went to help do that Christmas party. 800 Taramara showed up. 800. And the kids were able to do their traditional dances before their family. In our two light shine communities where we do this child sponsorship, there's two churches that have been, been planted. God is so good, he's allowing us to see unreached people groups get reached with the gospel. And I want to encourage you for just a moment with the heart of God. What's the heart of God? Why are you here? Why am I here? Why is God giving us breath on this planet? It's to know him and to make him known. God is a missional God. The birth of Christ is God on mission. God sending his son to be the ransom for many. And he calls us and he declares us to go and tell, to go and tell, to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. So whether it's here in our community or throughout our state or in the remote parts of the world, we get to be part of seeing the lost come to know Christ as their Savior. Do you ever feel like, man, I would kind of like to live during the time when Jesus walked the earth, to see all of the miracles that Jesus did? to see Jairus' daughter be, be raised from the dead. I believe that we get to see the greatest miracle ever take place. We've experienced it in our own lives, if we're Christians, and that's the regeneration of a soul. That's someone being born again. That's someone going from death to life. That's the greatest miracle. Because if someone gets raised from the dead in this life, what's going to happen? They're going to die again. If someone has their ears opened, they were deaf, but now they can hear, that's amazing, but eventually they're going to die. But when someone receives eternal life, they're going to get a glorified body and forever be with the Lord. They have become the child of God. This is the heart of God, to see the nations come together and the nations 
to rejoice before him. In verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. We think of God reaching the nations, seeing God reach the nations, and it shows us the wonder of God. David responds to the character of God here, and he says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me your way, O Lord. A teachable heart, a teachable spirit before God. Even in the midst of this trial, David is saying, God, I want to learn. I want you to teach me. We probably all can think of seasons in our lives where we weren't very teachable. (laughs) We had it all figured out, right? We were the experts. We didn't need God's help. We didn't need anybody else's help. We were telling everybody else how they should do it and how they should live their lives. But then there's probably been other seasons in our lives where we're very teachable, where we're broken, saying, Lord, I need your instruction. And it all comes down to a teachable heart. Maybe you look back and you go, you know, these last few years, I really haven't grown in the Lord. Things have kind of leveled off or, or maybe I've even drifted a bit. And could it be that the heart's not teachable? Maybe this hasn't been part of our prayer life with the Lord of, God, would you teach me? I'm ready for you to teach me. I'm ready for you to instruct me. I've made this decision that I want to walk in your truth. And when our hearts get soft and our hearts get to that place where we're teachable and we're decided that we're going to walk in in God's truth, then the Lord begins to work in our lives. Also, his prayer here is, unite my heart to fear your name. The fear of God's a little bit hard for us to understand sometimes. It's not that we're afraid of God in the sense that he's going to hurt us, though he could if he decided to, but it's awe of God. It's the respect of God. It's, It's the wonder of God. It's the fear of God that causes us to gain wisdom. It's putting God in his proper place, us being in our proper place. And David knows he needs to ask the Lord to help him in this. Lord, would you unite, unite my heart to fear your name. Choosing to praise the Lord, I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Allowing his heart to praise the Lord, allowing his heart to, to glorify his name forever. For great is your mercy towards me, and you've delivered my soul from the depths of mercy, the depths of Sheol, excuse me. God's deliverance in our lives, how merciful God has been to us, how the Lord has delivered us. We get a little idea of the trial that David's going through in verse 14. Oh God, the proud have risen against me. A mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. Probably referring to the time where Saul's trying to kill him. Saul is bringing an angry mob against David. They're hunting him. And David's saying, Lord, I've got this adversary coming against me. But once again, he focuses on the character of God. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. God, you're full of compassion. Jesus showed a tremendous amount of compassion in his earthly ministry. Many of his miracles were done because he was moved with compassion to those that he saw. The word compassion in the Gospels is actually having a physical reaction. 
Christ was so moved by compassion, he felt it in his gut. When the 5,000 didn't have food, it was his compassion that moved him to feed the 5,000. God is compassionate towards us. But also it tells us that God is full of grace. That unearned, undeserved, unmeasured favor. God's favor towards us in our lives. God's riches at Christ's expense. Who he is is, is gracious. He's also long-suffering. He's patient. Aren't you thankful that God is long-suffering with us? That God is, is patient with us? And he's abundant in mercy and in truth. He's overflowing in steadfast love and in truth. Notice the order of this. We focus on God's compassion, his grace, his patience, his mercy, and his truth. When you really understand the character of who God is, that he is gracious, that he is kind, it makes us hunger for his truth. It makes it easy to swallow the truth that he gives to us because we know that God is good. One of the greatest examples of all of these attributes of who God is, is seen with the prodigal son. The prodigal was the youngest of two boys. He comes to his dad with an entitled mentality. Give me my inheritance. Can you imagine? Dad's not even dead yet. This inheritance belongs to me. Give it to me now. He doesn't say, dad, thanks so hard for how hard you've worked. You know, thanks for following the Dave Ramsey plan. Not spending all of my inheritance. There's no please there. There's no, hey, hey, could you please give me this in inheritance? Just total entitlement. I want it right now. The dad could have slapped him silly right there. But instead, he writes a check. Instead, he goes to the bank. Instead, he does the math and gives the inheritance to the son. And the son takes off, begins to waste the money using the money actually to live out a sinful lifestyle. Lots of friends when he had lots of money. But when the money ran out, the friends ran out. The son finds himself in the pig pen. The son gets instructed by the pigs. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the pigs in this life that are the best teachers. We get away from God's presence we say, give me to the Lord. I'm going to go try it out here. I'm going to do my own thing. And before you know it, we find ourselves living with pigs and life's not so good. And here's the son. And the son goes, the servants have it better in my father's house than I do. I'm going to go ask dad, not if I can be a son, but if I can be a servant. He's humbled. He's ready to serve. No longer having this entitled mentality. Here's dad every day longing for his son to come home. He doesn't go chase his son. He doesn't go try to rescue him out of the pig pen. He knows that the son has to choose, but he's waiting. Every day, maybe my son will come back. I'm sure there were holidays, there were Jewish feasts where the son wasn't present and how that must have broke the heart of the father. So here he is in his usual place, on his deck, looking down the road, and he sees a young man walking. Could that be Johnny? It looks like Johnny. It is Johnny. That's my son. I would know his walk anywhere. And the Bible tells us the father begins to run. 
He runs to the son because God's ready to forgive, because God's compassionate, because God's gracious, because God is long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love. You would think that maybe the dad would have said things like, I told you so, or you know what? Your mom always thought you were an idiot, right? Okay, you want to be a servant? We'll see how you do. And start to give him the toughest tasks inside of his house. But the father hugs his son, puts a robe upon him, sandal upon his feet. He's like, guys, get the filet mignon. It's time for carne asada tacos. My son has come home. You're not a servant. You're a son. That's the grace of God. That is the way that God treats us because there's no one like God. There's no one that has this kind of compassion. There's no one that has this kind of grace. There's no one that has this kind of mercy. Maybe you've started to see God in the wrong light. Maybe you're looking at him and you're going, you know, I don't know that God is compassionate. I look at God's people and they're not very compassionate. I look at God's people and sometimes they struggle to be gracious. Look at Jesus. Look at who he is. And who he is is everything that God declares about himself. What an amazing God that we serve. David ends with this cry of prayer. Oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. God, put your attention towards me. Turn towards me and save me. Give me your strength. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The essence of what David says in verse 17 is, God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to show up. Show me a sign that you've heard my prayer. Two applications for us with this message. The first is, present your plea before the Lord. Present your plea before him. We've all got to decide where we're going to go with our troubles. David doesn't even follow the right model for prayer here. He breaks the rules. Technically, textbook prayer, even the Lord's prayer, when he teaches us to pray, we're supposed to start with thanksgiving. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. David himself will write, coming into God's courts with praise. But David's so broken, he just comes with all of it. It's almost like David comes into God's presence and he just vomits, right? He's like, this is where I'm at. I really need your attention. I need your help. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. And then as he's talking to God, it's the second application. He remembers the character of God. So pour out your heart before the Lord. And as you're pouring out your heart before the Lord, then to remember God's character. I would bet that most of us, if not all of us, have a challenge in believing that God really is compassionate, that God really is gracious, that God really is merciful. There's a part of us that goes, I think God might be mad at me. I, I, I think God maybe really doesn't want to spend time with me. I've been out in the pig pen. I don't know that he's going to let me come back and, and forgive me. God secretly just wants to bring judgment upon me and fry my face off. Right? God loves other people, but he doesn't love me. And our trial, our difficulty, our sorrow, our suffering can bring us to the wrong conclusion about the character of God. 
And as we take communion now together as a church family, we're going to be served corporately and then we'll celebrate together, is choose to believe what God says about himself and choose to put yourself fully into what Christ has done for you, saying, oh, your body has been broken for me. Your blood has been shed for me. I know that you're good. I know that you're gracious. I know that you're compassionate towards me. As we prepare to take uh, communion, we're going to pray in in just a moment together. If you haven't ever received Christ as your Savior, is this morning, I pray, would be an opportunity where you would respond. I'm going to lead us in a prayer to, to turn your heart towards the Lord, to really look at the good news of what Jesus says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed in him? Have you trusted him for salvation? To turn from sin and say, Jesus, I believe you love me. I believe that you died for me, that you rose again. And you might be saying, why is this so important? Why do I need to trust Christ for salvation? Because Jesus says this determines whether we go to heaven or hell. This this determines whether we're God's child or, or we're not God's child. So guys, let's pray together and press into to communion. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for your death and your resurrection. And because of your crucifixion, we know that you're good. Pray you would encourage those that find themselves in trial this morning, that we would come to you with our burden and with our difficulty. If you don't know Christ is your Savior, and you'd like to receive him, would you just pray this with me in your heart? Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins, that you rose again. I repent of my sin and receive your grace and your forgiveness. Help me in this new relationship with you. So Father, as we enter into communion now, we pray that you would minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.